You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. For this reason, I tell you that her sins, many as they are, have been forgiven her, because she has shown such great love. It's someone who's forgiven little who shows little love. Hello. Thanks for having me in your home. This is very beautiful. We're (laughs) surrounded by, um, uh, I know a few other people who care so much about what accidentally looks organized perfectly. And (laughs) I just want to say I deeply, deeply appreciate it. Um, and like me, you're a hoarder of books. Um, you're the best. Thanks for some time together. Usually where I start is with a question of when do you remember first encountering the Bible? Hmm. I was very interested in the Bible from a young age. Um, in school, I remember uh, in primary school that we were going to be studying the Gospel of Luke and that uh, interested me greatly. And I was looking forward to the year when we would. And I enjoyed reading the Gospel of Luke so much that I begged for a Bible for Christmas that year. So my mm. parents got me um, an old and a New Testament for children that had, you know, pictures in it and wow. sketches. I still have them. They're just around the corner. Really? Me. Yeah, they're just behind you. And there's wow. a picture of the devil in it, and it's all very exciting. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, of course, I was a child. I don't know how old I was nine or ten and so I was really interested in um, looking at the pictures and looking at the pictures of the devil or angels or who could fly or you know kind of mixing up the bible with superheroes yeah Uh, well when I was in Dublin um, I went to see the book of Kells mm. and it was open to the temptations of Christ Mm. have you ever seen that page I don't think I have there's a picture of the devil completely in black Mm. And they had a projection which said to look for the stab marks that you could see from the ink quill mm. of where the Satan had been stabbed by the, um, what do you call somebody who... The scribe. The scribe, mm. yeah. Wow. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, so that's my early encounter with the, with the Bible. And then I started to go places where I could hear people speaking about it. Obviously at Mass you hear a lot of the Bible. Um, confirmation classes in school. Mm. Um, I started to get involved in more ecumenical things um, from the age of 11. And uh, there was a lot of people there that knew loads of just uh, verses that were abstract to me, verses about by grace you are saved through faith and all these other kind of verses from the epistles. And I was always more interested in the stories and these abstractions always frightened me because people could quote them off and I didn't really understand what they meant and I think I still almost feel like it that words like grace and faith and righteousness um, and salvation they're all Protestant words because they never felt <laughs> like they made any sense to me and I, I mean yeah. I've studied them now I've written essays on them but I still feel very foreign to them I yeah. don't feel far, foreign to the gospel stories uh-huh. um, but I, I do feel very foreign to to caring too much about some of these um, equations of faith that people seem to have off by heart and that seem to be so important. You have a poem where you talk about, you juxtapose some who know Corinthians and others who know Catechism. Or, yeah. Did I get it right? Um, yeah, um, you're right. Some um, knew the Bible looks like ABC, yeah. Yes. Mm. So is that two, two different imaginations approaching... Is that the realities of Cork or um, this Emerald Isle or is it broader than that? Or is that a silly question? No, I mean, you can make distinctions between the Catholic and Protestant traditions in Ireland about which, what kind of focus on the Bible they have. Mm. I think it's too simplistic to say that the Protestants know the Bible and the Catholics don't. Um... I think somehow the truth is more murky. Mm. Catholics know maybe lots of the narrative work of the Bible because um, you'd have done lots of Bible studies or, or Bible stories and you'd, you'd have learned about them through the catechism, etc. 
uh, and maybe learned of prayers and learned the stories that were loved by a particular saint. So you'd know the story as it's wrapped up in the life of a particular saint and that the, you know a saint might have had a particular devotion to Jesus's hidden Nazareth years, for instance. And yeah. So there'd be all this imagination around that. And obviously then stories about Mary's interaction with Jesus, people, Catholics would know very well. Then Protestants, it, it, it seems to be know a huge amount of the characters from Hebrew Bible very, very well. Those are those old stories about um, arriving through the, you know, the through Joshua and knowing who these mm-hmm. characters are and knowing wow. stuff about Nebuchadnezzar and all those kinds of eras and and then being able to quote from Paul and Peter and having all of those uh, defenses of the faith and almost apologetics of the faith. Yeah. And so sometimes when it when when Protestants would speak about what they know about the Bible, Catholics would feel very foreign. And I think the same as vice versa. When Catholics would speak about what they know about the Bible, um, Protestants might feel like, this feels also very foreign. Mm. Uh, what's lovely is that that shows um, just two of the many ways in which you can find an inroad into the Gospel and into the Bible. Uh, kind of a, a practice of cultural hermeneutics almost. Yeah. The ways in which the text has been molded really uh, around some cultures mm. the benefits of that as well as the need for that to be more comprehensive and Ian Paisley famously used the conquest narratives to draw strong par- parallels between those who arrived from Scotland and from England is is that um, why the Joshua narratives are known in that um, because it is weaponized or is there just more familiarity with Old Testament? Yeah, I think it's. I think it's the latter. I mean, there are some people who have used those stories of Joshua arriving, and you know, um, in a way that justifies, you know, um, that tries to put colonization in some kind of God ordained story. Mm. But that's relatively minor here. Um, I think mostly it's deep devotion that the Protestant communities would know that. Um, yeah. It's um, spending time reading the Bible. Uh, it's spending time looking at the small minor characters, the in- incidental characters, thinking, well, that's like my life. I'm incidental too. Huh. And I think that's where that comes from in terms of the Protestant traditions and loving the text like that. Yeah. And I can hear um, your devotion and how dear it was for you from a, a young age. And initially, was the text something that turned your world upside down or propped the world up the way it is? Or is it something other than that, that those descriptors aren't really necessarily helpful? So I've always loved poetry and I've always read poetry. And I think I see any piece of written art inspired art, well I suppose hopefully all art is inspired in one way or another um, as something that forms a conversation partner with the inner life and with your own life Mm. and that can be um, uplifting, it can be depressing it can be confronting, it can be frightening it can be all kinds of things Mm. so I I can point to times when for sure a devotion to reading the Bible really enhanced life and I can also point to times when a devotion to reading the Bible petrified me. Mm. I remember at 15, somebody had said, oh, you should get a kind of a daily companion. Um, it wasn't every day with Jesus, but it was something like that. Mm. You know, um, you'd get it for three months. There's a there's a text, there's a kind of a, a couple of questions that are basically checking that you've understood. You know? <laughs> Comprehension um, questions, yeah, fill in the blank. Yeah. Jesus walked to Jericho. Where did Jesus walk? Jericho. <laughs> Exciting. And I found that quite boring. Um, and I remember having one of those. But some of the questions, you know, some of the comprehension questions were boring. But then there'd always be questions to say, what would that look like in your life? Or, mm. you know, this is a time of wilderness or a time of testing or people here didn't understand. What's that like for you? And I loved those questions. It was that were really helpful. Um, and I used to start. I used to write out some of the answers, which was nice. Um, but I remember uh, at fifteen reading something, and it was a really, really poor translation 
of the New Testament where it translated the Greek word arsenokotai to homosexuals. And mm. that petrified me. Uh, like I was re- How old were you? Fifteen. Wow. So like you're reading that and you're seeing this thing. I knew I was gay and you're thinking, What on earth is this? Like I'm here and I'm amidst mm. slanderers and slave traders and I mean these are the lists that you find, like yeah. the Timothy one and the other ones. And uh I remember like finding some of those texts impenetrable anyway because they're not narrative, you know. It's hard to know why does one sentence follow another in some of the epistles when you don't know to whom were these written or who wrote them or the circumstances. Um, and you're filled with a desire to pray. And yet you read this. And I remember not being able to sleep at night after reading the Bible. And so um, it it isn't always a companion. It yes. sometimes terrorizes you when you don't have the companionship to read it in a in a way that is nurturing. Well, when did that come? Like, was that a long process to find community that could actually help you hear something that wasn't terrifying, that was tender, that was... It came with Ignatius of Loyola. So, I mean, <clears throat> in Australia, actually. Really? Yeah, so I moved to Australia in 1999 when I was 24 and I mean I previous to that I'd been through three exorcisms to get rid of the gay devils in me all of which were fabulously unsuccessful Mm. and then a few years of so-called reparative therapies as well that were horrible and obviously language about the Bible was being used in these contexts and I felt very unqualified in the language of psychology or the Bible. So I, and I'm Catholic, and certainly in Irish Catholicism, were the kind that imbued me um, submission to authority is a really important thing. You know, I don't feel like I'm the one to interpret the Bible. Mm. If somebody says that I've got that they have an interpretation and that they have some kind of qualification, my my immediate assumption was okay how do I believe how do I take this on board not Mm. do I or agree with this or do I not Mm -hmm. I always thought that was a very reformed community question do you agree with that I remember hearing people say that and thinking are you allowed to wonder whether you agree or not (laughs) because devotion for me came with a deep sense of submission to the text and so that had been going on really since I was 18, some of those exorcisms and therapies, and I had begun to... But enter- not in that culture? In which or, or did it, like, in, in terms of the Catholic? Uh, no, there was Catholics involved too. It was the charismatic... Wow. It was an ecumenical charismatic context where, yes, that I was okay. in. Wow. Um, yeah, no, there was Catholics involved too. Um, I suppose there had been the beginning of a critical faculty which was beginning to create some distance. I'd begun, I had abandoned writing poetry for a few years, actually, from the age of 18, Mm. and it all kind of exploded through me at the age of 20. And I wrote a whole variety of poems, which many years later got published. Um, And so there was this beginning of um, a safety of language, and I always loved language. I had English and Irish and French and I started to teach myself some sign language as well Mm. and all of those things created a kind of a cocoon of safety and um, And here or in Australia? No this was this was here this was living in Dublin in 1998 I moved to Switzerland uh, and I went to Taizé for a few weeks in advance of that and I remember um, I genuinely went to Taizé to give up on God. I wow. And I mean, the irony to go to a retreat centre in France to give up on the idea of God was lost on me. For me, it, it honestly felt like some kind of pilgrimage to say I need to find a way out of this because I, I couldn't make these choices between God and what I knew to be true in me about being gay. I knew I didn't have a devil. I knew I didn't need to be cured. I knew that gay relationships, even though I'd never had one, I knew that they were not undignified. Mm. And I knew all these things to be true and I I had no possibility of enacting any kind of dignified life in the context I was at and I had nowhere to go. And so I went to Taisei. And 
the question landed on me totally accidentally one day in a beautiful spring day in Taisy in Holy Week actually 1998 just as the Good Friday Agreement was being signed back wow. here and the question was who do I like listening to when they speak about the Bible and because I loved the brothers in Taisy when they spoke Brother, yeah. Brother Thierry was giving these morning reflections that were just mesmerising entering into the text taking these characters really seriously what would you think about that not just saying you know was Jesus going to Jericho yes Jesus was going to Jericho <laughs> you know why did Jesus think this was a sin? Jesus thought this was a sin because. But he was going into the text with great dignity. And so, Thierry, and I thought about some others too, um, Dr. Hogan, I, don't, I can't remember what her first name was. She is a scripture scholar in Dublin, a woman in religious life, and she, mm. Frances Hogan. And she, I heard her lecture a few times, and I loved her scholarship. So I wrote out about five or six items that I thought characterised these scholars reading of the text and I thought I'm going to read through the Gospel of Luke and see if I can save myself by my reading and I still have that book that I wrote through the Gospel of Luke and what I decided to do was I'd read a passage I'd write out I'd make a list who was in the passage um, the characters and the location and then I would rewrite the passage from the point of view of every single character in it so I'd write out the text imaginatively but from, if there were six characters, from six different points of view. Yes. And if the stars were mentioned a lot like they are in the early nativities, uh, narratives of Luke, I'd make a star a character too. So it was it was really entering into a literary reading of the text. Mm. And then I'd write a prayer at the end. And I continued that the whole way through the Gospel of Luke, by which Incredible. stage my life was turned around in terms of loving the text. And also having this new muscle accidentally when if somebody was speaking stupid things about the Bible I just thought I ignore them yes that came accidentally it was mine yeah Yeah. I wouldn't have known enough to have said whether they were correct or incorrect but I I just felt like well I've got this practice and this practice is supporting me yeah and actually I found myself thinking about the Bible during the day something would have happened where there might have been a group dynamic in the text and then I'd be seeing a group dynamic around me and thinking, oh, that's just like the Bible there this morning. Hmm. And I began to have this in-depth conversation and it brought my love of language and my love of group work and my love of reading and poetry all together. Yeah. And it really transformed everything. And then the next year I moved to Australia and a friend of mine had said to me, um, you're pretty messed up. You should probably get a proper therapist. So... I went to a... Instead of the people who were butchering you before. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, I mean, they weren't therapists anyway. They didn't have supervision right. or qualifications. I mean, they were just using these words, but they yes. didn't have anything formal. Uh, or they might have done a weekend course somewhere exciting, you know. Um, so I um, happened upon... I was going to Mass in St. Dominic's Church in um, East Camberwell, very near to where I was living. And there was a sign there for a psychotherapist working out of Campion Retreat Centre in Kew. And he, I, I checked to see what his qualifications were. Mm-hmm. And he was qualified and accredited psychotherapist and um, supervised, etc. All of those things were written on the form, which, which gave me great comfort. Mm. And I went along. And I suppose because, I mean, he is a therapist working out of an Ignatian Retreat Centre there was a respect for religion, although we didn't talk about religion a lot. And one time we did talk about religion, and he said, how do you pray? And I told him about this way that I was reading through the Gospel of Luke. Mm. And he said, you have a natural inclination to Ignatian spirituality. Mm-hmm. And then he didn't mention anything about that for another couple of years. I mean, I went to see him for three years. Um, but during that time, I went and started to read about Ignatian spirituality. And I realized that Ignatius does ask you to read a text, read it through a few times and then go into it in your imagination. Choose the characters or the points of view that you find interest in. Notice where your imagination is drawn yeah. and to write a prayer from that point of view. Yeah. And so I had accidentally, I suppose, through the hospitality of Teze mm. and the desperation of a pilgrimage to give up on God, landed into a way of reading the Bible that nurtured a landscape that I didn't think was nurturable. Out of all the interviews I've done so far, Padraig, it's um, 
the most beautiful explanation of not just your relationship but my testimony when it comes to uh, and even details like I was I was 21 when I went to Taze and um, uh, experience for me was seeing a, a young woman who um, was there because she couldn't get into Plum Village and Taze <laughs> but she wanted to a spiritual experience so mm. the Buddhists were full so she came along to Taze and um, one week of reading through John's first epistle, um, she had become a Christian. Like, um, uh, and that that really blew my mind. But it's the same dynamic that you're naming in terms of Ignatius' spirituality. That there's something that trusts our intuitions around the text, yeah. and trusts our imagination, mm-hmm. and trusts our own stories and I, I wonder if it's Ignatius's own journaling of where have I found life mm-hmm. or where or, or desolation yeah that led him from soldiering to yeah a life of prayer Ignatius was a man of great imagination but also great incarnation he was a very embodied character huh. he doesn't talk too much about the abstract he talks about, you know, listening to the good spirit and the bad spirit. And he's not talking about your guardian angel and the devil. Mm. He's just talking about the, the ways in which you're, as you're trying to make a decision, or as you're trying to figure out how to live your day, you can be torn between all these versions of yourself. Um, that's an extraordinary insight yeah. about the inner life yeah. and that your inner life can present itself as a series of voices that drag you this way and that. And that he says to him, first of all begin to notice those begin to become a little bit familiar with them and then to begin to become familiar with what happens when I listen to that voice when I listen to the other voice Yeah, what drives me what do I really want um, when I follow what I really want what happens to me then mm. he asks all these questions to just do a review of your day in 10 minutes at the end of a day just a simple review and I, I found I'd been since the after those couple of years when I didn't write poetry and all this poetry exploded, I wrote every day for many, many years. And I found that Ignatius became a lovely companion in that. And some of his, they're almost like writing prompts for the inner life. Mm. When I mean, I, I do some a lot of work now in creative writing workshops and you're always giving people writing prompts to say, oh, write a poem about this, write a sonnet about that, you know, take this first line and work with it, etc. And Ignatius, it seems like, has a whole variety of writing prompts for the inner life to pay mm. attention to what's going on to do some kind of cartography about what it's like for you to be you yeah and for you to be a person of prayer and a person of doubt and a person of hatred and a person of everything and what i loved about the courage of ignatius is that he would say at the end of every time of prayer just cast your mind back and go what was that like and to say that was lovely from t- he, go, he says from time to time you'll have a beautiful experience of prayer don't get used to it. Because then you'll have total seasons of desolation. Huh. Don't get used to that either. They pass. Seasons come. Seasons go. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're stressed. Maybe you are under temptation. Maybe something else is going on. Maybe it's just the mystery of being alive. And all of that permissioning made so much space to just think prayer doesn't just have to be when things are great or when things are terrible. Prayer can be something that you can bring yourself to. There's a kind of a tool and a technique that on days when you don't feel like making it up, you can just go through it. And mm. some days you'll go, that was absolute mundanity. Lovely. <laughs> Great. Come back to it tomorrow. Yeah. And yes. you just do that like press-ups or... I suppose that's why sure. you call them exercises. Because he was just yeah, kind of yeah. going, just do it. It doesn't yeah. matter. Like there's days when you'll hate it. And then there's other days when you'll spend twice the length of time in your prayer because something has caught your imagination. Mm. All of those are part of the great journey of it all. Mm. Just pay attention the whole way along. And that, I suppose, Ignatius's companionship with me and that his companionship was a way that permissioned me into reading the Gospels with and for myself in a way that drew me out of myself. That was a great, great yeah, gift incredible. to be given. Yeah. Podrick, there's a, um, there's a gentleness and a humour to 
your poetry, to your writing, to who you are, how much of... Because you, you've also accomplished a lot. Um, uh, the, the work as a community leader, the work as a, a, a poet, you're, you're um, held highly on several continents that I visited and um, you're loved dearly. Um, by people who who know you and and don't, um, because there's such a sense of you in, and such such a sense of vulnerability in in what you um, write and and share. Um, one of the things my dad, who's very passionate about Ignatian spirituality, and he runs retreats as spiritual director, he likes to frame uh, to do great things for the glory of God. Gentleness and humour and drive aren't things that often exist together in ways that um, one's not lost at the cost of the other, where one's not sacrificed. Mm. But they don't seem to be in you. What what of that has got to do with these practices and what would you offer as a gift to cultivate that in people who are seeking to engage the scriptures in ways that um, don't just give up on, on not doing anything great with their life, but at the same time um, don't become utilitarian monsters in for the glory of God? Um, how, how does humour and that tenderness um, of... Your, how does that all hold together? So I remember the very day when I read that line that is not Ignatius's, but he he employs it to great power. Um, the glory of God is found in a human being fully alive. Mm. And I hadn't realised that for most of my life I had been wondering about the glory of God. Such a strange phrase, the glory of God. But every time you say the rosary, you know, you're finishing glory be to the Father and to the mm. Son and to the Holy Spirit and Gloria in excelsis Deo. You know, you're saying this word glory all the time when you're involved in all forms of Christian religion. And I saw this line, the glory of God is found in a human being fully alive and it reconciled this idea of the here and the hereafter together. Mm. That they can the hereafter can be found in the here and now. And it was an absolute conversion of intellect as well as mm. of soul. Wow. And I think it began to give dignity to the struggle of trying to figure out where the hell do I fit as a gay man who's interested in religion. And it began to give dignity to the sense of shame I felt as a failure, as a man, as that the kind of communities that I'd been involved with had these ideas that men who were gay were failures of masculinity. Um, I think I found... Uh, dignity, vulnerability, tenderness and kindness to be um, things that give great measure to a person of any gender. Mm. And I began to notice that I was motivated when I saw those things and that when you could approach those things with courage yourself, you found mostly that your relationships went deeper with people nearby you. Mm. they seem to be good measures for what it meant to be a man um, rather than measures of uh, banter or that's derogatory about other people Mm -hmm. they seem to be the practice of the virtue with a deep love not just because you have to but with a, a great and a deep love to go into those things and you find life in vulnerability and kindness and tenderness um and for me, the the language that accompanied me into vulnerability, tenderness and kindness was poetry yeah. and prayer. I suppose I see yes. an overlap between them, but they're each kind of exploring the murky world of your inner world where you encounter all your own devils and angels. And I found that when I spoke about that with people, that our relationships went deeper. Yeah. It seemed to me, well, then this is as good a place to stay as any, mm-hmm. to stay in the world of... Uh, speaking from the heart. Yeah. Uh, and that, I mean, I love in Hebrew that heart is the seat of the psyche uh-huh. also. I, I'm really uninterested in this heart-mind 
division. I find it yes. quite boring because yeah. we all have both, <laughs> as yeah, well as yeah. guts and bowels and tongues yeah. and ears, you know, the whole lot. And so I see that the heart and the mind are part of this um, uh, ecology of flourishing. Mm-hmm. And I found that the, the brain and the heart could work together in vulnerability and in learning. Yeah. Uh, and nothing has improved that so far, so I haven't bothered <laughs> changing it. Uh, I keep on seeing people in, in, in poetry, in theology, in, in works of art and in works of community and um, community building and conflict transformation. You see that vulnerability and courage are some of the things that draw us into the power of being human. Yes. Yeah. And, and I, I think that w- that's an inexhaustible supply of, of glory that we have right at our disposal, yeah. and it will always be petrifying to be the one to lead in that way. But yeah. that's okay, because <laughs> we respond when we see it. We do. And with that, I think, I mean, the humor thing. Uh, comes I, I think uh, when you can find the tenderness of the heart you'll, there's always going to be humour because we're always uh, funny or silly mm. or all of the things that come around with that and yeah. community that's built on the authentic engagement with each other will always have celebration at the heart of it I mean I love to cook and when I start, I and used to think well oh, thank I'm, you. I'm a recipient, You're a recipient. and <laughs> But I used to think about these ideas about cooking and then I start to think about cooking through the lens of this idea uh, the glory of God is found in a human being fully alive and there's like there's nothing really that gives me more pleasure than spending almost a whole day cooking for a whole bunch of people coming around the night seeing people gathered around the table food, wine, conversation it's just filled with joy and Mm. with that comes sadness and delight and humour and new relationships and uh, forgiveness and arguments and tension and all the great dramas of humanity. It's great to see, to be part of it together. Well, I I would love um, for you to to cook for us in terms of um, a passage (laughs) and uh, be able to um, invite us into that drama. Mm. But... Maybe before we do, why have you bothered to keep cooking given that you and I both have dear friends that there's enough in the Bible to do them in um, given their orientation? Um, What would you offer before um, we even do it for those who are like, why would I bother if mm. if if I don't fit this heteronormative thing, which so many from a pulpit have insisted is the only way to read these texts? Mm. What would you offer others to read it in ways that do turn the world upside down instead of prop up a world that leaves others out of the centre? Well, f- first of all, you don't have to read the Bible. So, uh, uh, I, I'm uninterested in convincing anybody that they have to. You don't. Like, it's perfectly possible to live a, a very virtuous life mm. in conversation with the Lord of the Rings or with um, the Metamorphoses or with um, Lady Gaga like, uh, or Beyonce, of course. Uh, of like, course. So uh, there's, there's all kinds of ways in which... Uh, to be nurtured in a narrative sense in the context of your life where if something's traumatic for you, like you don't have to. Hmm. If people are interested in it, but unsure as to why this would be good, I mean, the Bible makes Game of Thrones look like a children's story. The Bible is filled <laughs> with jealousy, with rage, with murderous um, revenge stories, with complex people fucking it up Mm. with people who seem to be uh, desperate on the one hand to follow God and they're haunted by the devils of their own making Mm -hmm. Uh, and 
when you strip away some of the foreignness of the these ancient texts, because they're foreign, because they're older than we are. Mm. But when you strip those away, you see these characters that are just filled with um, competing tensions in them, and you begin to go, oh, that's just like me. I mean, we won't be looking at this one, but in Mark's Gospel, there's this utterly vulnerable situation where... Um, like Jesus of Nazareth has come down from the mountain and he finds, just after the transfiguration, he finds some of the disciples there and there's a man there whose son, they're saying, has a devil in him and mm. throwing him into the fire and it's just all awful. And I mean, I think I think Mark is portraying Jesus kind of being a little bit caught up in his own theology. Jesus is kind of asking all these obscure questions, you know, about belief and do you this and do you that and, he just seems to be kind of still halfway up the mountain himself. Yeah. And then this man says, I believe, help my own belief. Yes. And Jesus changes. Yeah. And suddenly you just begin to see the temple of everything change. And you see suddenly it's like Jesus sees this man for the first time. And the man's sense of like, for God's sake, give me a break. Like I'm just trying to cope here. Mm. And you see that uh, Mark has portrayed Jesus in a way where you go, oh, yeah, I can be like that sometimes. You know, I walk into a room and I have my idea about something the way it should be. And I'm being bullshy. And then something happens where somebody's brave enough to be vulnerable. And you go, oh, my God, I've just been a dick. Mm. And you seem to see that moment of change in the economy of Jesus' human interaction in that moment and I think when we can realise that the Bible is, and also the character of Jesus can be filled with those kinds of moments mm. you think oh there's space for me like oh. I don't read this in a way to make me feel bad about myself or to convince me I, I can't fit into the landscape of the story but to go I'm everywhere in the yes. landscape of the story yeah. me and my glory and my guts and my terrible parts and my hopeful parts and my vulnerable parts that they're all there mm. and there's poetry wrapped into the midst of it and underneath of it all is the fact that all of this is captured into the great sweep of a narrative that says you're okay yeah. people have been trying this for a long time you're not a failure you matter mm. and you're part of this great sweep of God and this great sweep of the story of God you're wrapped into this and um it's a beautiful thing. I'm thinking now of the opening lines of the sacred books in Battlestar Galactica. All of this <laughs> has happened before and all of this will happen again. And I love the writers of Battlestar Galactica for what they did because they too, they, they made this great sweep of a story where when people could find the right side door into the text, they began to be able to read their circumstances in conversation with this text. Mm. And so nobody has to read the Bible, um, but it can be a great thing to do it. Yeah. Would you do that for yeah. anything? So um, in Luke's Gospel, the seventh chapter, <coughs> there's a text. Um, it's Luke seven thirty six. Will I read the text and then, or will I just Ooh. talk talk with it? No, I'll read it's, it through. It's, it's about 14 verses. One of the Pharisees invited him to a meal. When he arrived at the Pharisee's house and took his place at table, suddenly a woman came in who had a bad name in the town. She had heard he was dining with the Pharisee and had brought with her an alabaster jar of ointment. She waited behind him at his feet, weeping, and her tears fell on his feet, and she wiped them away with her hair. Then she covered his feet with kisses and anointed them with the ointment. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who this woman is, and what sort of person it is who is touching him, and what a bad name she has. Then Jesus took him up and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. He replied, Say on, Master. There was once a creditor who had two men in his debt. One owed him five hundred denarii, the other fifty. They were unable to pay, so he let them both off. Which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one who was let off more, I suppose. Jesus said, you're right. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, 
You see this woman? I came into your house, and you poured no water over my feet. But she has poured out her tears over my feet and wiped them away with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she has been covering my feet with kisses ever since I came in. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. For this reason, I tell you that her sins, many as they are, have been forgiven her, because she has shown such great love. It's someone who's forgiven little who shows little love. Then he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Those who were with him at table began to say to themselves, Who is this man that even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, <coughs> I I love this text. I mm. think it's really powerful. And I, mean, I think it's, it's, it's a grave mistake to hear Pharisee and to automatically think hypocrite. Sure. Um, it's far too easy to do that. And I'm sure you can divide the world in, uh, in a very sectarian, binary way. So I'm always curious to think, why did Simon invite him? Maybe he was genuinely curious. As somebody who likes to invite people to my house for meals, it's a, it's, it's a way within which you can think, gosh, how could I, how can I have really limited understandings of people? Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing. So anyway, this woman arrives um, who had a bad name in the town. Luke is being very circumspect. He's being, I mean, she's, he's implying that she works in prostitution, but he doesn't actually say it. Um, and there they are dining and she's brought with her an alabaster jar. And it, it makes me think, why, when did, did she have it with her? Did she hear? What happened in this pre-story that we have no idea about that made her think, Either I have this jar of ointment and I'm going to go there with it or I'm going to go home, get the jar yeah. or go and purchase the jar and go there. And this woman clearly is very brave and courageous. I, I see her as an intelligent character. She cannot have been ignorant of the fact that she would not be welcome in this environment. Maybe she knew lots of, if she did work in prostitution, which Luke is implying maybe she knew a whole bunch of these men professionally. Mm. Who knows? Mm. How did Simon know who she was and what a bad reputation a reputation she has and what a bad name she has in the town? So she's behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, and her tears and her... It's a very sensual text. It's filled with sensuality. Yeah. Tears and kisses and weeping and hair and touch and feet. It's very, very sensual. Intimate, yeah. yeah, extraordinarily. Um, and so when the Pharisee sees this he doesn't judge her because he's already judged her like as soon as she appears he's like well you know who she is he judges Jesus for being associated with her it says in verse 39 when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this he said to himself if this man were a prophet he would know who so this woman is she's just a pawn in the total assumption about who she is and the the value of her life and presence and the impact of being associated with um, and it's association with her it's affiliation is causing Jesus to be judged and you see that contemporarily do you know who do I wish to be seen with what will happen if I'm seen with that person mm. um, these days there's lots of pretty poisonous public language in religious contexts about liberals and conservatives sure how do liberals and conservatives wish to be seen with each other or not yeah. can you be seen to be going to the same place are we caught into a system that only imagines two possibilities you know yeah. the goodies and the baddies even in the midst of uh, i mean i've been deeply hurt by fundamentalist religion i've been almost permanently affected by it but even in the context of that i still don't see that that hurt gives me permission to return hostility for hostility mm. I feel drawn into something different because otherwise I would break me never mind anybody else um, anyway yeah. so yeah. we see this here that there's an anxiety about association Jesus tells this pithy little parable you know 50, 200 denarii lovely who who love him more great, fantastic, congratulations but then this really interesting point verse 44 then he turned to the woman and said to Simon you see this woman? If you imagine that they were lounging, leaning on their left hand, eating grapes or pomegranates or whatever it is mm. that you ate at meals at this time, 
stuffed vine leaves. Turning to the woman, he uh, it would seem like he's turning his head from his host, which is yeah. gravely, gravely insulting. Today, my friend Elias lives on Nativity Street, Bethlehem. Literally, that's his address. And so um, I asked him, what would it be like if, when I stayed with him, if at your table I turned my head from your parents and spoke to them from the back of my head? Uh-huh. And he laughed because he said, like, they wouldn't know what to do because they wouldn't want to insult themselves by being rude back to you, but they also wouldn't want to insult themselves by not acknowledging your insult. Huh. They were, they'd be caught up into this moment of oh, a dilemma of hospitality wow. towards somebody who's being rude. So you see, Jesus has been really confronting here, turning his head from his host and asking this question, do you see this woman? And I think the, the literal answer is no. Simon doesn't. Mm-hmm. Simon sees everything that he has between him and the woman. And it's, I mean, to take a kind of a scholarly reading of it, Simon's hermeneutic of her is one where he is reading himself and every all his obsessions about yeah. what he imagines her life and perhaps her body and perhaps her sex is all about. We're learning so much about Simon yeah. in this. And we are tempted, I think, as readers also... I mean, the, this is the Jerusalem version, the New Jerusalem Bible, and the, the the title of this is The Woman Who Was a Sinner. So mm. even whoever has put these um, titles there is taking the hermeneutic assignment Simon, towards her. Right. So that, yeah. that titling of this text is so flimsy and so poor and so limited because I think this is about the man who was asked to see and you. Mm. Uh, this man because he saw this woman so poorly, he couldn't see anybody with whom she was associated with dignity either. So this question, do you see this woman? No. And then Jesus goes through this litany of things, you know, she, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. And he is honouring her lips, her tears, her hands, her kisses, her hair. He is honouring all the her scent, the things that she's using to scent his feet. He... Jesus is honouring all the things that could be used to say, ah, yeah, but you know where her hands have been and where her lips have been. And Jesus is saying, deeper than what you were using for indignity, there is dignity. Yeah. And what's interesting is that Jesus is seeing this because this woman is bringing it to Jesus. And there's a little twist that happens in the text. In the little parable, forgiveness of your debt happens first and love comes as a response to forgiveness. Do you know? You're forgiven 50, you're forgiven 200. Who's going to love more? Oh, for God's sake, the ones. Easy. But in this, Jesus seems to change. When he turns, he sees somebody who's actually shown great love. Yeah. And he's going, well, okay, forgiveness is there too. So your sins are forgiven. Some people want to go, aha, but he called her a sinner. But I think he's just, he too is caught up into this moment of, who is this woman who has done this for me? He's drawn into a moment of great hospitality in his understanding about what does it mean to be part of the community of the beloved Mm. by looking at her. Mm -hmm. And I think that she is the author of her own forgiveness. She is the author of her own salvation. Jesus Mm. says to her at the end, your faith has saved you. I mean, what does that mean? I mean, certainly not that she thinks he's the second person of the Holy Trinity incarnate in human form, born of a Virgin Mary, will crucify, you know. Yeah. Of course not. I think he means your guts, your your very own self, your courage, your heart, your being here, your thisness right here, right now. She is without any words in this whole text. Mm. She's given no words whatsoever. But she is such a powerful author of that. And she is the moment of conversion, of challenge to Simon. And I think of Jesus. In theory, he's saying, oh, you know, (coughs) uh, love grows in response to being forgiven. And then he looks at her and he thinks, "Um, hmm," except sometimes love seems to come first. Yeah. And he, too, is drawn into a moment of being changed by her. And I think it's such a beautiful thing. I mean, the Gospel of Luke is obsessed with this question. Who is this prophet? Who is this prophet? Mm-hmm. Who is this prophet? And um, even so, the Pharisee, when he sees Jesus being associated with her, says, if this man were a prophet, you know, he's just kind of going, well, clearly he's not a prophet. 
But I think what's interesting about her is that she changes him. She changes Jesus. Yes. And what, what therefore a kind of a deeper theology of this is that this prophet was willing to be transformed by the anonymous people that he met through That's chance right. encounters. Yeah. And that means to be open to the ordinary everyday and the way in this, which this can enhance your life, which only opens our eyes to the person next to us on the bus or the person with whom you work or the mm-hmm. person in your family or all those irritations of the day to imagine where might I find God in those. And the the incredible reality of I mean I have a very high Christology but my very high Christology comes very low in Jesus Mm. Um, and what does it mean for Jesus to have received more insight into his own vocation in his full humanity that he would wash the feet of Mm. disciples yes in such a way that it's hard not to see this being refracted back into this interaction and yeah. Um, it did, did Jesus seeing this woman after naming the way that she was not seen help him see himself, what the Father was calling him to, his own vocation? Um, like it's the foot washing in, in John's gospel is a replacement for the Eucharist, yeah. right? Like yeah, it, it's totally. his the message in the meal or, or here's um, the, the message in this means of, of grace. Like it's, mm. it's a phenomenal, it's a phenomenal text. It is. Yeah. I mean, it finishes with the, those who were with him at table began to say to themselves, who is this man that even forgives sins? So again, you're caught into the drama of the, the, the greater, scope of this whole gospel of Luke is, you know, the the prophet the, the, the Pharisee is saying, is he a is he a prophet? Yeah. Is he not? The people are now going, Who's this man? Caught between what do we do with how do we understand reputation yeah. uh, and capacity? And and there is a Christological question that's being explored in Luke. But I think there is an anthropological question being explored around everybody. Yeah. Sometimes, um, you know, you might meet somebody and think, oh, they're an ordinary looking, boring person of no interest to me. I'm not going to spend any time um, having a conversation. And then you might go, oh, that person um, taught hunger strikers in a political prison in Northern Ireland in the 1980s how to paint dying flowers. Wow. And suddenly you go, how wrong was I to assume because of whatever markers I'm using to to judge whether or not a person is going to be an interesting conversation partner. Mm. You know, is this person a prophet or who is this man? Who is this woman? Like, what does it mean to meet a person? Yeah. And what is it that will cause our imagination about the interest of a person to be flourishing in such a way that we can create human encounter in the most ordinary moment. Mm. Uh, I have a friend, Danielle, from Adelaide, and Danielle used to uh, bring out, and she still does, the most extraordinary pieces of information from anybody, like people she'd meet on a bus or, you know, buying a pint of milk or anything. She'd come away, she'd come home and she'd say, what did I tell you what happened to me today? And you'd mm. always just go, okay, I'm putting down everything I'm doing because I... <laughs> I just know that these things happen around you mm. and they happened around her because she made them happen around her. Huh. She was incarnate in the present moment. She was yeah. present there and she could find all kinds of ordinariness, sometimes painful things, sometimes beautiful things, sometimes funny things. Uh, one time she was talking to, we both worked together in Melbourne and she lived with me then in Belfast for two years and she'd been talking to a four-year-old in Melbourne whose family had moved from Zambia. And we were all working together, me and her and this four-year-old's parents. And um, Danielle got talking to the four-year-old and she said to him, uh, what was it like when you moved from Zambia to Australia? And she had a quality of asking questions that four-year-olds knew, oh, she wants an answer. Yeah. And the four-year-old looked at her and he said... 
do you know what fear is? Well. And she said, yeah, I do. And he went, okay. It was like that. And this four-year-old was showing hospitality to an adult because the four-year-old wasn't sure. Do adults know what fear is? Yeah. I do. And she brought that out. So Danielle was a constant reminder to me and, and remains so about what is possible in the most ordinary encounter. And that, I mean, you speak about having a high Christology. I like having, uh, and a high Christology that's low also. Mm. I like having a similar thing with anthropology. What's Uh possible in humanity, that we can draw something out of each other. And not only the beautiful things also draw the raw heart of our own hostility and jealousy and um, vengeful desires to find those things present uh, orbiting inside of us. And I think somewhere in the space with all of that, we'll find God. And something of that that story, um, her hospitality to a little one that so many would look over and not ask questions of, and the little one's response with a hospitality into Mm. their little world and could a big person fit into Mm. their world. Um, And the complexity of hospitality that you've drawn out in this text that here's Jesus in a space that isn't his. He's Mm. vulnerable by turning away to somebody else who is vulnerable and the exchange of... Mm. Like I was thinking, Padraig, as you were talking about people who we look past and um, think they have nothing interest to to share or um, that we make the opposite mistake as well. We end up thinking that those who host us in certain settings of importance or whatever that they've obviously, and if we keep waiting, it's like the judgment that's the other side of Mm. um, if we continue to give our focus away to the places that we've been told that they should always be fixated on maybe that others that that are present there never get to listen to the things that would transform them as well Mm. I don't know, I'm, I'm just trying to sit with that reality that you've opened up about this Russian doll situation of hospitality. And And another interesting thing in this text is that Jesus is shown to be somebody who's very comfortable in escalating conflict. Yeah, it's great. (laughs) I I gave a seminar in Scotland once called Jesus would have been a shit mediator. (laughs) Because, I mean, there are times he does mediations but regularly, he's really comfortable in turning the volume up on conflict yeah. and challenging a host, you know, yeah. um, against protocol. I mean, today, yeah. there's all kinds of protocol regarding how you are when you go to a house, you know, yeah. bring a bottle of wine and, you know, you're polite and those yeah. kinds of things. And if the host is weird, well, then you just hold it to yourself and make your excuses or pretend you've got a phone call. You know, all these kinds of things that we do. But Jesus here is just really comfortable to go, what? Yeah. And to just turn that up, which that takes uh, courage, but it it shows somebody who's also willing to say, I want to challenge what you're saying. And I really like that because especially when we understand that the Pharisee probably had really interesting motivation. Yeah. Rather than, oh yeah, of course he's just being a hypocrite because they all were. That's a terrible thing yeah, to think yeah. about. Shuts Pharisees. down yeah. all those aspects in ourselves. Totally. Like, it yeah. just makes the Pharisees these straw Cartoon. characters. Yeah. yeah, who just wander in like they're like um the coyote in 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 uh, Roadrunner, you know. <laughs> just always going to be there out for the bad. Yeah. You know. And that's utterly denying the sophisticated reality of being a human person. Yeah. Uh, I'm a Pharisee, you know. Yes. Uh, the Pharisees were really interesting characters who yeah. had preserved the faith, who were loved in the the working people. They were not paid for what they did. Yeah. They had great prominence because they had earned it over hundreds of years by being people who, amidst repeating uh occupations that seem to happen like a recurring nightmare. The Pharisees were and are an extraordinarily sophisticated, courageous bunch of people. Yeah. And it's... With a great concern for justice. Yeah, amazing. With with, um, 
a great concern for community and what will hold community together. Yeah, totally. Um, and how to actually survive. And, and the fascination around forgiveness, we drag into our worlds where um, the land that you were born on and the land that I was born on uh, uses these narratives to deal with issues of guilt. Mm. But for Pharisees, forgiveness is about a new world can start. If forgiveness is declared, mm. well, a new age can break out. Like it, it means something else is. Yeah. Um, and the question, who is this to forgive? It's like, is it that time yet? Like, mm. it is yeah. is this underway? Is are we finally going to see what we're waiting for? Yeah. Not really this privatized. What am I going to do with my guilt? Kind yeah, of. Totally. And so. Uh, when you look at it like that, you think, oh, this is an admirable person who maybe was a product of their environment yeah. for a while or their family situation or whatever, that they couldn't see past their sexual obsession yeah. regarding her. I mean, I am regularly in the situation where I'm there as the kind of spokesperson for the gays in a situation where, you know, you're speaking on behalf of us to say that we're capable of love with each other. And... um I was speaking once at an event. Uh, there was a lot of people there who really wanted gay people to be curable, to be turned straight, and or to, to kind of declare that you know our, we are gay because of sin or etc. Mm. And I was speaking, and then there was a Q and A, and somebody said uh, they made a, a statement about my erotic life. And in their imagination, which they were proclaiming out as if it were correct, I had this extraordinarily juicy erotic life. I mean, that would have been great, but <laughs> it wasn't true. And I, we were caught between their public projection of their private fantasy life onto me. Yeah. And I mean, I didn't want to embarrass them, but I also did feel the need to say, what you have just done tells us a lot more about your imagination of my sex life than anything to do with my sex life. Yeah. And so pay attention to why is it that you feel okay to declare to everybody here that you've been thinking a lot about the sex life that you think I'm having. Mm. Suddenly we're into a very awkward moment of the here and now. Yeah. Instead of... An apocalypse. An apocalypse and this fantasy about the hereafter where you won't get into heaven, but I will. Uh, when we And I think the gospel is always interested in wrestling our fantasy about the future and planting it right into the here and now. Yeah. And saying, what's going on now? Yes. And what can we do now that will make us look around and go, I have no idea what's going to happen. Hmm. And that is a very courageous and exciting moment. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I think the Bible is a great accompanier, because over and over again, circumstances, usually based on interruption, often with people who are morally marginalized, those experiences happen and drag people who are obsessed about their imagination, about the certitudes of the future. That is erupted a little mm. earthquake happens mm. and there is apocalypse because what's happening right now the curtain is drawn back the carpet's lifted up the stone is turned over you see everything that you're trying to hide and we don't know what's going to happen yeah and all that's left is virtue of courage and love and the capacity to tell the truth the mm. capacity to be open to change the capacity to say, I got that so wrong. Mm. And that opens us up to something very rich yes. in terms of vulnerability and being human together. Well, I'm, I'm deeply thankful for your prophetic vulnerability that opens up other things that could happen. And so thanks for your friendship and being able to share that with others via a podcast and, My pleasure. and opening this up if if people want to go deeper in uh your poetry or in terms of um your writing or um you're a phenomenal facilitator you're um uh, you're one of the people i really uh, people like yourself and renee august uh, that i can name a bunch of people around the world that i look to and go 
much more than preaching, they're able to teach in ways that people discover what lessons they have in themselves. If if people are wanting to see where you're doing those things around the world, what's the best way to find Paul Drake? Um, I have a website, just my name, com, and I am um, on Twitter, Duanala, which is the Irish for spider, which was my nickname when I was in school. <laughs> I keep on thinking I should change it, but it's been stuck now for years, so I just leave it. Go on, Ella. Um, yeah, so I put stuff up there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll put up all the details yeah. as well. Thanks, mate. Thank you. The Inverse Podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash inverse. Inverse.